Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The date is November 13, 2014, and happy birthday, Alexander Scorvey. We are here for Fall Classics, and Accessible World is so very pleased to hold and host this wonderful event. But let me turn it over to one of the co-founders, I guess, of of, uh, the DB Review List, my friend Nolan Crabb. Nolan, the microphone is yours. Thanks, Bob, and good evening, everyone. A couple of quick, super quick items. Uh, Don Horn, our co-moderator, sends his his regards. He's unable to be with us this evening because of a previous engagement that he really could not get out of because of the the commitment that he had made and there's probably some some money that changed hands for tickets and things that he was unable to uh, to, to uh, uh, avoid that and, and be here. But he certainly will tune into the archive, and I know he sends his regards as well. My thanks to... Um, Bob and the Accessible World team for once again having the fire lit and the uh, comfortable chairs, as it were, and hosting this, uh, what has become an annual event, really, and I'm grateful to all of you for being here. Um, Many years ago, well, not many, several years ago in Cleveland, I heard John Polk speak at a family fun and learning day hosted by the Cleveland Library, and one of the things that John spoke of at, at that in that gathering was um, Huck Finn and his his experience narrating it and the uh, the thought that he had to give to the dialogue and all of those wonderful things. And that speech was so compelling and so well done that it stayed with me these many years or several years. And back in the summer, uh, Don and I were speaking, and I said, "Gosh, what do we do about the fall classic for this year? We really need to." ramp it up a little bit and see if we can't put a good twist on it somehow. And I had mentioned to Don this speech that John had given in Cleveland. And uh, Don said, well, why don't we try to have him speak at the, uh, you know, lead off the discussion for the fall classic. And I thought, gosh, the guy's probably so busy, I don't know. But we did, and we off- we asked, and he was so gracious in accepting an op- uh, the opportunity to be here. And so we're certainly honored to have uh, John Polk with us. You've all been the beneficiaries this month of his outstanding narration, and I know you all will have a lot to say to him about those things, and I won't be, uh, monopolize our time any further. I'd like to turn the uh, time over to John and just let him talk to you about his experiences with the book and his thoughts and his, you know, those kinds of things, and then when he's finished, we will... Uh, sort of just go around and talk about it ourselves and ask John questions and, and have a, a basically good time. So, John, if you're able to hear me, I'm going to turn the uh, time to you. Okay, very good. Great. Okay. Well, first of all, let me thank uh, Nolan and, uh, and and all of you for uh, inviting me to do this because it's not often I get a chance to talk to, experience uh, a conversation with the patrons who use of the MLS service. You know, I've been doing this for 35 years, and I, I can count on my hand the number of times I've actually had a chance to meet people and, and have a conversation with them about their experiences. One of the things that, that when we read at the American Printing House for the Blind, the same thing is true of the folks at Potomac and, and Denver and uh, formerly at AFB, is that we operate almost in an isolated way. Uh, in a high production environment, and uh, we don't even very often get to listen to the work we do, except uh, at the time we're doing it. And later on, don't get much feedback, either from patrons or from a reviewer or from 
uh, even our studio director, who is so busy that uh, he can only tell us, well, you're doing a good job, John. Thank you. And no, I, I don't have time to listen to your book. <laughs> you know, so it's like uh, there's not much opportunity to hear what people think to get, uh, you know, constructive criticism. We used to get that from the National Library Service. They don't have the budget anymore to provide those reviews for us, which were very helpful. Um, so when um, even even some of the regular stuff that comes along, fantasy, science fiction, mysteries, everybody has a favorite. And I know that when I read, there is a significant audience out there, even if it's a limited one, uh, of, of those of you who are extremely interested in that particular genre. Then every once in a while there comes uh, a classic like this one, which is just a great fortune to be asked to read. Uh, first of all, it has to be assigned to your studio, and then uh, out of the 30 or 20 narrators that we, we have, however many we have at that time, I have to be chosen as the one to do it. Luckily, I have a pretty good southern accent, and so there was a pretty much a consensus that I would I'd probably do as good a job as anybody. On Plus, I've done a lot of children's books, and the voice of Huck was so important. So um, I got the opportunity to do it. And I guess it was uh, 96. I think it ended up on, on cassette in 97. We sat down and started working on it. A um, little technical stuff. Normally, we get 60 to 90 minutes on usually around 90, which is the production standard, in a two-hour session. Other studios do it a little bit differently, but a ratio of about three uh, for every uh, four hours in the studio, we would get two hours, I mean, three hours on tape. And that is such a high production capacity that you can't really put a lot of attention to detail. In other words, you can't stop and say, I need to do this character better. I need to read that line better. Or let's discuss with the monitor or the director how we ought to approach this. It's really all up to me and every other narrator to not only get a lot of time on in order to produce these things at a fast pace, but at the same time to do as good a job as we possibly can for those of you who read them. So when the opportunity comes along to do something like Hug Finn, you got to stop and say, wait a minute, this is a whole other thing. Not that the work we do for you is, is any less important, but when it comes to a classic, this is for a long time people are going to be listening to this, and it's going to mean a lot to people in succeeding generations to be able to hear this. And so, you know, I decided I wasn't, you know, we get paid by the recorded minute uh, throughout the system, so we lose money if we spend any any time in preparation or we spend any time in the studio stopping and saying, let's do this better, let's redo this line, let's, let's Im- improve on that uh, character. But we decided to, do, to forego the, the monetary side of this and really put the effort into it. So I got probably half the amount of time per, per studio hour in, uh, in, in doing this because I wanted to pay a lot of attention to the detail of the dialect and the and what Mark Twain was attempting, and most of all, to get the sense of the two primary characters, Huck and Jim, who really, I think, are the conscience of America in, in, in the great crucible we've been going through in terms of, of, of reaching the promise that America originally established in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And, you know, we've struggled with that through the Civil War and even today. Uh, you know, it's the uh, race has keeps rearing its ugly head, 
and we keep having to fight it back. And it's one of the, the things that in America we have to constantly be vigilant of. of. And what Twain was, I think, attempting to do was was give a conscience to America that we are a young nation, at least that we were then, and and we're trying to get it right, and we so often mess that up. And Huck, I think, becomes the the conscience of a young nation, which is why I think why uh, Mark Twain chose a young boy. At the same time, he wanted to have a rousing good time for uh, a young boy having a great adventure in the time he set this in, which was, I think, around 1835-1840. And and to have some a great deal of humor, he wanted to sell this this book to a large audience, uh, starting with uh, young teens. I think, though, that he also was targeting uh, people of all ages. I think he wanted to get a much larger, bigger message across. You know, Ernest Hemingway, as I, you know, the things that I sent to you, I think, a couple of weeks ago, some of the quotes from the different authors. Uh, Ernest Hemingway said the all-American fiction starts and ends with, with uh, Huckleberry Finn. So... As I as I was reading this, I, deti- I decided I was going to give Huck a really uh, a really American voice, uh, a voice of both wonder and and approaching uh, an, uh, the an age of wisdom in his life, and that Jim was going to provide for him the, the 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 missing father figure, the true friendship, and an understanding of, of of where he was headed in his life and what he wanted out of life. Anyway, uh, my experience was just—it was an enormous, enormously uh, satisfying one, and I—and I, um, I really don't want to get any more into my experience without uh, giving you guys a chance to to ask me questions or to uh, discuss this amongst yourselves. And, and, and if you have any questions, I'd be glad to answer them. Um, I think we can probably get more done that way. So I'm ready. I'm open to questions if you're ready. What's your name? This is Lynn. My name is Lynn. Yes, Lynn. Go ahead, Lynn. Um, I'd like to know how um, the narrator, John, how he developed uh, what you, what did you really draw from from, to get that backwoods style and dialect that just brought the characters to life? How did you have to do that? I don't think, well, first of all, uh, at the very beginning of the book, many of you will um, remember that Twain, in a little bit tongue-in-cheek, explained uh, right the, in, a, in a serious way what the dialect was that he chose to do. Uh, obviously, an 1830s dialect, even Twain wasn't fully aware of what that was. Heck, he was just a very young boy at the time and certainly didn't study it when he was a boy. Uh, he knew, obviously, what that dialect was, but I think he also was sending a message that America is a, is a melting pot. And these dialects around the country were very, very specific to, to locales and regions. And America was also a homogenized nation. And there were dialects that gotten, had, had crossed genres and crossed borders. So when we look back at it, at it these many, many years later, there's no way to get a hold of what dialect he is referring to, but we can get close. And certain aspects of the southern dialect are uh, 
probably pretty close to what Twain was trying to accomplish. And the other thing that he did so well was he decided to write in Huck's voice and in the other voices, Jim's and so forth, and the dialogue that he wrote. He decided to make uh, to to make sure that you, the listener, you, the reader, would be able to determine that dialect by the word he put on the page. And so that's and since what we do when we read a book for NLS is to be absolutely accurate to what the author is intending, what he's putting on the page, I had to go through, sometimes word by word, and interpret which Twain did a great job of helping me do that, interpret what that dialect probably was. And as I began to sound out the words and, and flesh out, a, say, a whole sentence or maybe a whole paragraph of, of talking about something or one of the, one of the characters that were, came in or Jim's dialect, it, became, it just kind of opened up to me. It, kind of, it became clear what, where Twain was going with it. And that's because he did such a fantastic job of uh, writing this thing and, and being sure that he conveyed that dialect accurately and in a way that could be told by a storyteller out loud. And that's another thing. I really believe that this, you know, the storytelling um, tradition that existed prior to the printing press was still very much alive in those times. You know, a lot of people didn't read and write. And they depended upon storytelling even then. Uh, and that out loud storytelling, n- not really many authors up till that time in English literature had really addressed what, how people really sounded and told in, in telling stories in a way that, that out loud they come alive. Most people had written for the printed page. Well, he, I think, wrote for, if, he, if there had been narrators and audiobooks in his time, he would have gone for that big time because it, it was right down his alley. And uh, so when I... When I got the sense of what he wanted to do with the characters and the dialects, it it just flowed off the page. It, it was so much fun to do, and, and I could almost have read it cold. I didn't do that, but I I could have almost read it cold once I got the characters in my head and what he was intending to do, because the dialogue, dialect was so fantastically rendered. Do we have any more questions in the phone room? One more question, and then we're going to take it to the studio. I have another question. (laughs) Another one? Well, Uh, yes. I'd like to know who who John thinks or probably knows back in in the 1830s. Who who was the target audience? I mean, who who was out there buying the books, or did it not become extremely popular till later? In his life. Well, he, you know, the story was set in the 1830s, but of course he published it in the uh, 1880s. He, he was... Okay. His intended, his intended audience was uh, young people. That was uh, ostensibly... He had started that process with, uh, you know, Life on the Mississippi, uh, when he, I mean, when he wrote Tom Sawyer. And he intended for Huck Finn to be a companion book to that. In fact, he sold him as a set. And it's one of the reasons that these manuscripts that are in this version uh, didn't show up until much later because he had originally sent to a library that was going to hold on to these manuscripts for, his, for him and his family. 
uh, half of them he had sent earlier, and they had gotten lost because of, uh, well, I'm not sure exactly what caused it, but they ended up finding them back in the early 90s, authenticated them, and found out that, and started to, to study the reasons, based on some of his writings, what why he left this out or that out. There are several, several very significant scenes that he left out, which this version now has restored. And, and it, one of the reasons was he wanted to have a short enough book that it, it would be palatable to young people. And there were some aspects of, the, of these scenes that he was a little worried about because he thought they might, um, he didn't want to get the book banned because it had too much reference to 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 things that might not be seen as appropriate for younger people, uh, so he that that was probably one of the reasons he left out some scenes, and then he was also um, uh, intending to sell these books and make money from them, and he didn't want anything that would cause a stir. At the same time, he had a definite intention to tell the story of America through the eyes of these two primary characters. So uh, those were some of the reasons I thought that he had uh, uh, established the time period as he did. That was prior to the Civil War. Okay, let's take this to the studio then and see if there's any comments or questions. Hi, um, this is Michelle. Um, I, I wanted to thank you, first of all. You, the book was, your narration was absolutely amazing. I, I so much enjoyed listening to, to the story. Um, I actually, believe it or not, had never read this book before. So this was my first time, and it was such a pleasure listening to you. Um, one of the things that I wondered as, as I listened along was, what did it look like to you on the, in the book form with the addendums and the the added material, um, I wondered if you could describe that to us a little bit because I had a hard time visualizing what this would actually have looked like in book form. Now, are you, is your question about uh, when I ever I would say the word addendum, what that meant? I think she means John how it would look on a on the page, Michelle. Could you clarify that? Because he did say addendum. You know, I, I was thinking um, back when I could could read print. If you read, let's say, a work by Shakespeare, a lot of times on one side of the page they'd have what Shakespeare had written, and then on the right-hand side they would have sort of explanatory notes and, and things like that. Is that what you were looking at when you were reading, or was it just that they just added in the material? Because I, I just, I, from my own curiosity, I was just curious if it looked any different than an ordinary book that you would have read at other times. No, what they did is in uh, at the end of the book, they had what they called a textual addendum, which I think is in the last part of the uh, narration. Uh, and it's basic, since this was a in, in some ways an academic approach or a scholarly approach to, uh, to the full a definitive edition of Huck Finn, uh, they decided not to, you know, to include the original manuscript throughout the book that was not included in the first or subsequent publications. But also, in the process, they wanted to, to describe to you things 
uh, I guess, from an, uh, a critical standpoint or a historic standpoint, what was going on in the book, what a certain thing meant, why this scene was included, why, and it might not have to do with something that had been an issue left out. It might have to do simply with, okay, you know, this is something that people in our time might not understand, so we're going to, you know, we're going to go into the back of the book and talk about that and explain it. And so whenever that point would come up, the word actually would be in the text and it would say, addendum. And I would have to insert that word to alert the listener that there was an explanation in the, in the final uh, sections of the book that would help flesh out what was going on there. Uh, John, very quickly, uh, and Nolan, uh, we'll yield to you next after uh, he comments on this question, because you are the chair, and you may have comments, which we'd love to hear. And, I, you know, I want to step back here. Um, but at one of your reviews, I think it was, I've read so many, um, one of the authors said, Mark Twain cheated at the end when he brings on Tom Sawyer. I'm not going to talk about Tom, but that was a boy's book. It was fun, a fun read that I read in the fifth grade. Huckleberry Finn, I thought, was a boy's book in the fifth grade, but it was much further that than that. What I want to ask you is, he brings on Tom, and you have the piracy and all that, and Tom knows that Jim is a free man. Now, you're Mark Twain. How would you have done it? I was disappointed with the pirate scenes and all that stuff. Uh, are, you, are you speaking of the uh, pirate scenes uh, in the, uh, towards the beginning of the book? When they're... Uh, I'm not sure what you're referring to. I'm sorry. When Tom and Huck meet up at the end of the book, and Tom says, "Let um, let me say it better here. Let's slip things in the pies. Let's let's steal everything." And uh, and Huck said in the middle, of the, "Why don't we just take him? Why don't we just help him escape?" And I guess I'm asking you. It seems like that Tom, that Mark Twain might have cheated there to bring back Tom Sawyer. But how do you feel about that? Well, I, th- I, I, I in a way, I, I think he did cheat a little bit because I think he was. You know, he had. I think he got. I think he got into this this character far more than he ever did uh, Tom Sawyer. And I think he realized that it, you know this might go above the heads of some of the some of his target audience. You know, the younger people. And so he wanted to bring the character of, of, of Tom Sawyer back. And and I, I think that got him into a little bit of trouble towards the end. Actually, um, I, I even reading it. Uh, I. I felt like, boy, this, there was so much going on in this book. It was so much, and then all of the, and then this, it ended this way. I, I felt he he may have not uh, thought that out as well, but I, you know, hard to get into his head. He's not around to tell us. <laughs> what do you think? Well, I don't know, and I, I will, I'll dare not. <laughs> second guess Mark Twain I think what you said is just fine Nolan do you wish to um, comment here take over please alright well thank you again for that great introductory um, perspective John and all of you we're going to give everybody a chance who wants to ask questions to do exactly that I'm not going to take a whole lot of time I would like to know I realize that uh, John that every book you do is different from every other book and that's certainly a given Um. Can you just give me a couple of areas in your mind where this particular narration really stood out for you? Is there anything about it that was particularly memorable or maybe different from all the other books? Or is it pretty much 
you know, you, you do it and, and you move on to the next. Uh, how does that stand up in terms of, of what you remember? I know it's been a lot of years now since the narration. Well, uh, I guess the best way to answer that question is to say it's not often that an author has the, uh, the uh, I, 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 it really is a talent. And it's also an openness to reveal the depths of their own soul and where where they come from. Because I, I didn't believe that that uh, Mark Twain w- was one of our great American uh, voices and and great American souls. And he uh, he in Huck Finn pre- was able to go deeper than he'd ever gone before. Because you got to understand, Mark Twain was a he was basically a humorist. He wrote articles in the newspapers. He was a columnist. Uh, he had fun with things. Uh, I think the first thing I ever read of his was The Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, mm-hmm. uh, which is hilarious even today. And yet that ability to use humor to get to the deeper uh, stories inside, uh, in, inside families, inside communities inside a nation he began as he as he pursued his career to to be to find out he could do that i'll tell you there's another author a current author today who's a lot like that some of you may have read his books um, uh, pat conroy another southern author who wrote prince of ties that that ability when you get a book like this and you are able to get into get really in touch with those characters and the author has done such a great job as Twain has done to, to create that character you can then you can then really become that that person and you can imagine that you're in that time and some of the scenes that allow you to do that and I you know I'll give you an example uh, one was when uh, Huck was deciding whether or not he was going to turn Jim in because he felt he was sinning uh, by by having uh, participated in 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 this uh, in Miss Watson losing her slave which was worth eight hundred dollars and and getting in touch with his conscience there were a couple of scenes where where he had to make up his mind what he was going to do and it, it as I was reading it, it it brought me to tears I, I would have to stop because it was such a, such a, uh, you know, a, an emotional moment. Another emotional moment was when Jim was describing to Huck. That, uh, Huck comes upon him, and Jim is, uh, Jim is, is kind of buried himself. He's buried his head in his hands, and he's moaning a little bit, and he's obviously reminiscing about his family and, and missing them a great deal. And Huck asked, starts, a- starts asking him what what's going on? What's the matter, Jim? And Jim starts to describe just a, a, a simple scene that he's remembering before he lost his family. And it was about, about his daughter. And it was when he found out that she was deaf and dumb. But he did not know that when he got mad at her for not shutting the door when he told her to. And it turned out he found out she was deaf and dumb right at that moment. And he's remembering that experience and 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 very, very emotional about how he had mistreated his child and holds himself responsible, and he's, he's so missing his family. And at that moment, I mean, I, as I read his voice and him telling the story to Huck, I just, it, I, I, there were several times I had to just stop and gather myself 
and 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 get back into it without losing that emotion, you know, and without losing the emotion in Jim uh, Jim's voice. And all the Jim, the character, he was he was present there to help Huck learn and grow and 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 get a, a sense of 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 what that experience must be like for someone who's never had his freedom and who's lost many things and people that are dear to him. And it, it runs so counter to everything Huck has been taught as he's growing up that he's having a hard time reconciling that. So those emotional moments, I think, are very unique. And they, they, they so rarely happen in books. And many authors aren't really able to do that. And those that are, like Mark Twain, uh, are just, it, it just grabs you as a narrator. And just, uh, I hope I was able to do that in, in a way that, that was not only entertaining, but uh, deeply profound and getting Twain's words and his message across. Yeah, I remember them, it being a, uh, in the movie The Miracle Worker about Helen Keller. There was a scene where Helen Keller's father asked Helen to do something, and she pretty much ignored what he said because she was deaf, and her father didn't realize that, and she and he he smacked her one until and uh, I just was wondering uh, why I would get that connection but between the two stories, but uh, my my original question was. Uh, in the actor Hal Holbrook, when he toured as Samuel Clemens and did his lectures, did that have any influence on you on how you read the book? Well, I actually went um, to when he, when uh, Hal Holbrook came to town doing the Twain. That I actually went to see him. He um, he was at the Louisville Palace, and I was just mesmerized. Now, you know, that's another type of performing, obviously. There's a lot of visual to it. What Hal Holbrook was able to do is is, is grab the personality, as he saw it, of, of, of Mark Twain and Samuel Clemens, and, and use humor and... and uh, and his, you know, the episodes in his life and the and his history to to convey, you know, humor and 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 his his uh, feeling about the country he grew up in and loved. So, yeah, yeah, he, there was an influence there. Um, boy, Huck, I tell you what, the character he created here, these two characters, were just they came alive. And I'm, and I, you know, they, uh, they, you know, they're still, they'll be with me till the day I die. <laughs> they're just, you know, I think about them all the time. One of the strengths of this book is its realism and how realistically things are done. But there's one part that is so unbelievably outrageous that it just, I wonder if Twain was just having a little fun at our expense. I'll tell you what, where, where I mean. Uh, about chapter 32 or so. Of all the people in this town that they happen to go to, Jim would be sold to Tom Sawyer's uncle. And why would Uncle Silas 
this preacher, this upright person, be in the kind of low-life place where the king would have been selling a supposed runaway slave. And the other just unbelievable part is that Huck would just happen to come to this particular town of out of all the towns on the river on the very day that Tom Sawyer is coming. I mean, <laughs> that just totally stretches your belief. Uh, and and I'm, I can't believe that, that Huck, that Twain would have done that unless he was really trying to make fun of that kind of literary device, perhaps. John, I, uh, I really, I've admired you for years and years and years. When you said that we don't have a way to contact and let you guys know what a job you're doing, I can't remember all the times I've wanted to do that over the years. I especially love the way you read not only Tom Sawyer, but your westerns and so forth. My God, your Mountain Man series, you just, oh. Um, is, is there a way we can contact and, uh, you guys? You know, this. Um, many of us now have become aware of uh, DV Review and have uh, uh, joined, you know, the review where, where we get... Um, those reviews that you that you guys do, the discussions that you have about the various books, uh, and you know, honestly, sometimes when we read a review, sometimes there's a critique of the narration, it, and if it's a well thought out one, it's very helpful. And also, learning what somebody thinks of something you've done really helps you a lot, especially if they are as specific. So, DB review is a good place for you to express yourself because I think a lot of narrators are. are are getting clued in on that and, and connecting with it. John, this is Bonnie, and one of the things that I've been particularly struck by with your narrations and listening to your voice tonight is the tenderness and gentleness that you exhibit, the feeling you express. It comes through so clearly. When I first started reading the books that you narrated, I was reading a lot of the... Um, young adult fiction that you've done, um, contemporary young adult fiction. And I especially love uh, that genre, especially. Um, I know that was a horrible sentence, but anyway. Um, and I really like the way you do it because you bring a grace and a beauty to language. I think language is um, a type of music, and the way it flows has a lot to do with how something is written in the first place. And I was wondering specifically what makes a book in terms of the writing of the, the writer has, uh, uh, has uh, achieved. What about writing makes it difficult for you to narrate? Um, is there, do you sometimes feel when you're reading that you're in a fog and that it's hard to find the clarity, the, um, that you are trying to express that the, the writer has tried to put forth? Well, you know, I, I, I want to obviously honor great authors because they are, they're, they're the whole reason you and I both do, do what we do. You read and I, and I narrate. And when I read myself, um, but in the, in terms of uh, interpreting an author's intention, when it's difficult, it's usually because the author has not 
been able to for some reason or not is doesn't have the uh, the capability of doing this of of bridging the gap which I think the printed page creates between what would happen in a normal conversation if you and I sat down and we told each other stories you'd be watching my reactions you'd be hearing my voice if uh, you would be you, you would be uh, communicating with me we'd have back and forth but an author doesn't have that advantage they have to create inside their head so one when it's the most difficult I think is when authors don't when they don't imagine the scene out loud or the narrative out loud to themselves I think some authors are are very very uh, very much in their own heads and other authors are more demonstrative they're more they, they have to express something out loud I give you an example playwrights when they are when they're developing a play they will they but one of the parts of the process is to is to present that play to a dramaturg who's trained usually many of them have masters or PhDs in dramaturgy and they 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 then tell the author of the play here's where you're going wrong here's where you need to get better that's normally in literature it's supposed to be an editor but sometimes that doesn't happen and as a result authors sometimes miss the boat on communicating who their character really is giving them a backstory giving them a uh, you know a deep uh, giving the, uh, the, the listener or the reader a sense of who they are so that's when it's difficult is when they haven't been able to do that and when they're when they're when they lose their way in the thread of a story and when they don't lose their way, when they know where they're going, and when they know their characters well and are, and are willing to be brave enough to put that out there, you get a great and you get a great sense of what they're attempting to do, and it makes it much easier. In fact, as I said before, there are some authors like uh, Pat Conroy that I can read out loud, and I almost don't have to prepare it. The author's done such great preparation that I can almost read it. Cold and and uh, just apply my I become a conduit for the author. I know when an author hasn't done a very good job is when I'm having trouble with that when I can't I, I just can't get a sense of it and I honestly the way it feels to me is I'm not doing a very good job. You know I first point the finger at myself I, mean, I must not be I must be doing something wrong. And eventually the monitor will say to me no this this author just isn't getting it and I'm you know it's not your fault. Just keep doing the best you can. Keep bringing out as much of uh, Be enthusiastic. Okay. You know, there are going to be people listening to this. You know, sh- you've got to show your interest in it and that you're invested, even if this is it's hard to do. And over the years, I've learned how to do that. And I learned from a lot of the greats, like Nancy Friedlander and, uh, uh, you know, Roy Avers and some of the people that I worked with, you know, earlier in my Big career. Bar. Hi, John. This is uh, Joshua. I want to say uh, thank you very much for reading Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. You did such a nice job reading it. And i got to say, for me, one of my favorite uh, parts of the book was when you read the the uh, unpublished part of the manuscript, the, the Raftsman's Passage, where he was, where Huck went to the, the, the big raft where all the guys were kind of uh, kidding each other and they got in that big fight. That was kind of cool. And they... Uh, told that story about the uh, about that floating haunted barrel. I thought you did a 
really good job reading those parts. Uh, I really enjoyed the whole book, and you did such a nice job. And thanks for uh, for for reading it for all of us. It was really it was really great. Well, thank you for that. I, I'm, I very much appreciate that. I like that scene too. That was one of the fun scenes in the book. Asking a question to those of you who read that scene and remember it. Do you think there was any underlying, I know this is a very humorous scene and and, uh, and kind of exhi- exhibited the roughness that Huck was facing as he went down the river. Uh, uh, what what did you get from that scene in terms of why, why Twain may have not included it or may why he wanted it in the book initially? And And if you thought that that scene had some deeper meaning or if it was just for fun. Hi, uh, my name is Ann Parsons, and I'd just like to compliment you on your reading of Huckleberry Finn. And also, I, well, I don't really have any questions, um, except that uh, I just, I could sense that you really enjoyed what you were doing. And that's so important for a narrator to, um, to convey that you're, really enjoying what you're doing and as I say I really have no no um, questions but I do have comments and thank you whoever that was on the phone uh, room for muting yourself so that you could wash your dishes in peace uh, <laughs> um, thank you very much so uh, with that I'll I'll leave the I'll leave the microphone but thank you so much for coming thank you you're welcome My name is Donna Slavosky, and I just want to mention that from the time I first read Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn as a young girl, I fell in love with those two books, and I especially liked Tom Sawyer, and I didn't really think about it that deeply as to whether Mark Twain was cheating when he brought Tom into the end of the book. I think it's pretty obvious that since he wanted to, intended or hoped to sell the books as a set, that would be a good way of connecting them to bring Tom into the book um, in the end, sort of to uh, tie both stories together or or both sets of adventures. I really enjoyed rereading Huckleberry Finn, John, and hearing you re- narrate it for us was just, just a delight. Um, but I'm asking myself one question. What in the world was it that a young girl of about 11 years old would find so appealing about these books because I think they were definitely books for for young boys rather than young girls but I I loved them I I remember just being totally fascinated by both and in in the New York area on the Friday after Thanksgiving for several years in a row, uh, several years in a row, one of our local television stations would always show the adventures of Huck, um, of Tom Sawyer. I don't know who um, who the actors were who played in it, but I, I would look forward to that from year to year. And um, so, hearing the book again was sort of like walking down memory lane for me, and I I enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you so very much. Uh, you're welcome. And uh, just a small comment about what she's talking about. Um, I, I, I see this as a, uh, as a universally appealing 
book, and, and the characters is universally appealing. And what I mean by that is, is, you know, as we're learning with uh, our children today, girls can do everything boys can do, for the most part. And we encourage uh, young girls as they're growing up to, to believe they can do anything, uh, that they can accomplish anything they want, that, that they're not restricted, and that their dreams can come true also. And so, in a way, the universal characters here of Hawk and Tom Sawyer uh, allow for even, no matter what gender you are, allow you for to dream of your of, of, of possibilities of having adventures yourself. And and it's because his are so rich and full of life, and he meets so many characters along the way, and and learns so much about himself along the way, that it's it's bound to be appealing to anybody. Um, as those are my thoughts. I also want to mention that um, uh, when I was in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, for a, a meeting for work several years ago, I got to go to the Mark Twain house, and having been a, uh, a, a fan of his work, from the time that I was a child, that was quite a treat for me to actually be in the home where he lived with his wife and, and brought up his daughters. And uh, it um, it was quite a fancy home. It really didn't feel very homey to me. Um, he was quite wealthy, and the children had a nursery. Right next door to his house was the Harriet Beecher Stowe House, and I happened to think that that home felt much more like a home to me. I used to be, uh, again, when I was younger, a, a great admirer of Mark Twain, but I think over the years I've mellowed out, and now I find his him to be somewhat of a cynic, actually. But I, I did see the humor in many parts of Huckleberry Finn, and it made me laugh. Uh, Donna, if I may add, absolutely he became a cynic. You know, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court was attacking America, Victorianism. We're jumping away, and I apologize, but I had to throw that in because I thought your your thoughts were good. Uh, and uh, uh, he also attacked the, the Chester A. Arthur administration. I mean, he's poking fun at everybody. He's, he grows more and more cynical. Well, hello, this is Deborah, and... I, I have been trying for some time to make my uh, computer cooperate in making a comment to John, so now that it surprised me, I hope I can collect and deliver it. I, I loved the narration that you gave this book, and I loved hearing you use the word conduit because it is the way that I have always described what I consider to be an excellent narration. Uh, so many commercial audiobooks, the actors get carried away with creating lots of voices and nonsense, and it, it, um, it interrupts the flow of the book. It gets between a listener and an author, whereas what you do so beautifully and that you've described the process so beautifully is directly connecting me as a listener to Mark Twain, the author. And, and I think one illustration of that for me was the fact that I read this book 40 years ago. It was on big, heavy records 
on my old talking book player and I was a kid and I loved it, loved it, loved it and that was a different narrator, I don't know who he was but the tribute to that narrator and to you and to Mark Twain is that so many of the scenes, particularly um, the one that you mentioned already with Jim remembering his deaf daughter and also the one where Huck has a good time tricking Jim and then is, is so ashamed by his behavior. Those scenes were still ringing in my head and you just brought them right back to life. It was just such a beautiful job. So thank you. Thank you for, for doing what you do and, and doing it so well and, and connecting Mark Twain with all of us. Uh, if I can just uh, uh, comment on one uh, scene that I thought was very reflective, a couple of them actually, I think were reflective of what uh, Twain was attempting to do. And maybe he wasn't even aware that he was doing this. He's just such a talented guy that I think he may have been doing this in the subconscious and it came out in his writing. And, and there's both the cynic part of, him, part of him and the hope that he had for America, too. Uh, and uh, a couple of scenes. One is when, um, you know, earlier in the book, after Huck and Jim have first gotten together, and uh, Huck is telling Jim all about the kings and queens and the way they act, and, and, and uh, they get to talking about Solomon. And if you remember, uh, Jim is very uh, skeptical of Solomon that, you know, he's, he's talking about especially the incident where there's a dispute over a child, and you remember that famous story. And, and one of the things that Jim does that I think illustrates what Huck is learning and what we ought to be learning is that, that, the story, that all things go deeper than we initially think they do. And that holds true with a certain turning points in history, things that are happening at the time that we're living in. And, and in this particular scene, he's trying to convey to Huck, look, you know, it's not about, you know, Huck is trying to get him to see the, the moral of the story of Solomon, that he, you know, he basically says, I'm going to, you know, well, he was going to see which, which of the women truly cared about the child, loved the child, because he was going to cut the child in half. And, and of course, the, the, the mother of the child says, no, 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 I'll give up the child. And that's how Solomon learned who he should give the child to. But Jim takes the story deeper. He's trying to convince Huck that there's a deeper moral here that most people miss. And throughout the book, that's what Huck says about Jim, which is Twain telling us that Jim represents a real American conscience to go deeper about what we're, what we're really all about and the stories that we tell about each other and about our country. And so in this particular case, uh, you know, and if you'll remember the scene, uh, actually uh, Jim gets a little upset with Huck, and he says, uh, Chuck says, but I tell you, I, you don't get the point. And, and Jim says, blame the pint. I reckon I knows what I knows. And mind you, the point is down further, is down deeper. It lays in the way Solomon was raised. 
You take a man that's got only one or two children, is that man going to be wasteful of children? No, he ain't. He can't afford it. He know how to value them. But you take a man that's got about five million children running down the house, and it's different. He as soon chop a child in two as a cat. Plenty, plenty more children, a child or two more or less, weren't no consequence to Solomon, Dad. That's it. And he gets really upset. And there is a deeper point to that story that a lot of people miss, that uh, that kings and queens, and this is a, his cynicism in Mark Twain, kings and queens and leaders who have great egos and think it's all about them, we have to we have to hold them more accountable. And kings and queens can be just as just a, at one point he calls them all rapscallions, <laughs> you know. So. In, in this particular story, and then a, another deeper story, deeper scene that I think is is wonderful is, and I mentioned it before, is when is when Huck is uh, finally determining which way he's going to go down the bad road or down the good road. And he's been told all his life that going down the good road, he would have to turn Jim in, and going down the bad road would mean that he's going to have to be true to his friendship with Jim and protect him. And he decides, well, then I'll just go to hell. And that's how he ends the, the chapter. And I, I just think that's beautiful. Deciding that you're going to go to your culture's con- conception of hell instead of going to the real hell in, in t- right now, today, in how you treat your best friend. And if you don't treat him right, if you don't treat the people you love right, you know, treat the people in your community right. That's a hell in itself. And I think that's, that's the, deeper thing, the deeper message that Twain is trying to convey in using these two characters. Those were my thoughts as I was reading it, and it, they were emotional for me to read. That is very profound, John. Thank you. Do we have another question, please? I was really annoyed with Tom Sawyer. And, and I know this this was fun, and I, I think what this kind of is is that, okay, in society's views, Tom Sawyer is superior to Huck in every way. He's got education, he can read and write, he has uh, uh, he wears good clothes, and, and Huck is just this sort of white trash person that everybody nobody wants to have anything to do with. But Huck has really lived real experiences. Tom Sawyer, at the end of this, is he's just playing a game. He's just being the fool, and his foolishness could have gotten Jim killed. Of course, it didn't, but it could have, and almost did. Yeah, I agree. I think that I think Tom Sawyer was not thinking about Jim's humanity, and I think Huck Finn decides Jim is a human being like me. I think that all throughout the book he was getting a glimmer that he is a man. He is a human being. I am a human being. And I cannot, I cannot um, see him suffer any more than he's already suffered. From the beginning of the book to the end of the book, you can see how Huck matured throughout the story. And Tom kind of, you know, stayed, stayed the same just as he was in the beginning. Because in the beginning, he was playing that, uh, that game of robbers with all the boys. And then the end of the book, Tom does the exact same thing, wanting to, you know, uh, free Jim, who was actually free to begin with. But, yeah, Tom hadn't changed, and Huck had really grown up and become a lot better as a person than uh, 
than uh, Tom had. You guys are right about that. But then Tom represents organized society. Okay, he chose that road. I think that's what's beautiful about this. That that uh, of course Huck has the the conscience. He's the key and Jim are the consciences of America. But Tom chose organized society. Huck went out west, and I think it's beautiful the way um, Mark Twain drew that, drew that parallel. Uh, so forth. Let's see what uh, John has to say about this. Uh, 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 John Polk here. Well, uh, strikes me is that Tom Sawyer, and I like your comment that he represents, you know, a mainstream society, uh, perhaps a shallower view of life and of the world. But if you remember throughout the book, Huck has great admiration for Tom. He uh, he he will he will comment that 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 he's come up with a scheme, but it couldn't possibly be as good as something Tom Sawyer would come up with. And what he's referring to, and remember, this theme is throughout the book with the various people it comes across the uh, the king and the duke. Uh, you know, one of the big stories about America is that we we have advanced our wealth through, and I, I'm talking about collective wealth, of course. We have advanced the country's overall wealth through the machinations of deceit in some cases. And the, those machinations, we look at the same way we look at Br'er Rabbit, for instance, who's always in the, in the Uncle Remus stories, which I also have the pleasure of narrating, who... Uh, where where Br'er Rabbit is always the 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 uh, trickster, and he never thinks deep. He never there's nothing ever substantial about Br'er Rabbit, but he is so clever that most of us need a Br'er Rabbit in our life to look to 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 uh, get us through. Sometimes where we need that kind of cleverness, and those of us who are, let's say, truer to ourselves, have a hard time coming up with that because we're not willing to deceive. Tom Sawyer was a, a, the, the representation of imagination in America, imagining what, you know all the possibilities. And, you know, when he imagined in Huck's early on, you remember when uh, uh, when they're talking about the Sunday school and. And uh, the gang has decided, uh, Tom has con- tried to convince the gang that, that, that what they're seeing out there in the, you know, is, is uh, uh, I think, a bunch of Arabs and harems and all kinds of things. And at the end of that whole episode, uh, Huck concludes that, that all it was was Arabs. It, it wasn't Arabs at all. No, it wasn't any of that. It was, it was, it was just a Sunday school to him. In other words, he was basically saying, I know Tom Sawyer's full of you-know-what. At the same time, he was saying, I look up to him because he is so clever. He can think of things. He can, he can build a world that is, that, that is so enticing. And uh, we experience this these days when we, you know, when we listen to, you know, to stories being told, those of us who go to movies, those of us who, you know, who listen to audio books, we hear stories that are pretty sensational. And we buy into them, and after we think about it, we think, "Well, that was a pretty, you know, that was that that wasn't a very nice story, or that wasn't, you know." But boy, I sure got into it, you know. They took me on a trip, 
anyway, I, that, my thinking is that when the, one of the reasons he brought Sawyer back in at the end was because we needed to be reminded that Huck had changed and that he was growing up and that that was important and that people like Tom Sawyer were as important in Huck's life as Jim was because they, they, they gave him a sense of where he was. And by the end of the book, he was beyond Tom. That doesn't mean he didn't love him any, any less. But now he understood Tom for what he really what who he really was. And I, the character that Tom Sawyer reminded me of so much in our in our current you know uh, uh, his history recently. And I, I also compare him to Br'er Rabbit. I know this might sound weird to you guys, but I and that's Bill Clinton. I have always thought of Bill Clinton as been this enormously intelligent man beyond most of us, who is so clever. And we look up to him. We, give, we forgive him all of his moral uh, you know, problems in, in, to some extent because he is just so able to, to do the things we can't do, to, to, to convince people and persuade them. And I, I thought Tom Sawyer is a lot like that. He had Huck going a lot, and he still, even at the end, he almost had Huck going again. So, you know... Those, those types of, of people in our lives are an important part of our lives to teach us, in some cases, you know, what not to do and, and what, you know, how, how we want to move beyond that being that kind of person at the same time realizing that, you know, there's a Tom Sawyer in all of us. There's also a Huck Finn in all of us if we want to go that far, if we want to grow. I'm talking too much. I want to hear more from you guys. <laughs> yeah, I had read the Uncle Remus tales, and with all the, like, over a hundred characters, and I completely lost count, and every character had a different dialect. And you needed to get some kind of an award for doing that. That was simply amazing. Uh, and you've never seemed to stumble and get one character mixed up with another. It was truly amazing, and what a pleasure to read that book. I think another thing that happens, too, is that there's a lot here about love and acceptance and loving in spite of and despite everything. One of the things that I think people like Tom, because they're just sort of so carefree and let's just have a good time and play and and uh, the idea of not growing up is that I don't know that he ever understands just um, how much people put up with in knowing him and love him anyway. Um, my mother cleaned houses for a living, and I remember her coming home sometimes and and she would tell us certain things that happened with rich people she cleaned houses for, and she would say, uh, she would tell us about things they did, and there was almost an expectation of, well, that's just the kind of thing that those people do, but I like the lady anyway. But there was a certain expectation, and I think that happens on both sides, that um, a, a poor person or a person like Huck would know that maybe people don't expect all that much of him, so he has to expect it of himself, and he decides where he wants to grow and where he wants to go in life, and the other person who has more thinks they'll just uh, have everything they need. 
but they each have a choice to make, and one of the choices that they have to make is love. And that's the choice that Huck makes. And, and you know how many times in the book he says, I'm, I had to go into the woods to think and, and, to, and to reason this out. The fact that he is willing to do that and that, and that, that is what Twain creates in him, this, this, uh, this uh, sense of, uh, what we, uh, what's the word, proper word for this, this sense of, of uh, self-awareness. And, and it's absorbing what he's experiencing and turning it into a new way of thinking. And he does it throughout the book. He, 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 he asks himself questions. He challenges himself. He wonders about things. He, he goes through a progression of thinking, and he doesn't shut off input from others. He calls a spade a spade in some respects. He, he knows they're rapscallions, but he still doesn't know how he might mean and the learning from it. And, and really makes a journey that's fueled by the fact that he's willing to think through things, to understand why he's feeling the way he's feeling and, and attempt to interpret it, even if it leads him, as he says, to go to hell. Uh, you know, which is just a, you know, something that he's been taught. So, you know, I think it's, that's another aspect of Huck's personality that, that moves the story along. <laughs> This is all about book smart versus street smart and how often we admire the book smart people even though they may be completely lacking in common sense. What really made me love this book was the absence of of warning labels and sort of uh, proscriptions on things. We live in a pretty proscribed world these days, unfortunately, in so many respects. Um, You know, I, I... even my childhood was was vastly different from what I see my grandchildren uh, experiencing in many many regards. We we didn't have phrases like stranger danger and and some of the the stuff that has become such a part of the warp and woof of our child raising culture. And you know, helicopter parents weren't even heard of really very much in my day. They may have existed, but um, pretty sure I didn't have any. Although mine were certainly not careless parents, but they. And and what's beautiful about this book is the, the absolute glory of being an, a young adolescent and having that much independence to just get on that raft and, and tear up the river, you know, just, just go out there and do stuff. And, you know, it's great. He has that $6,000 back there in the bank, and he's got a few bucks with him on this little journey that he's making. But there aren't warning labels, and there aren't helicopter parents, and there aren't... Uh, curfews and it's that's for me what makes this book just absolutely magic one thing that i was struck by was um when they were on the raft and they were always in the water and and they would fall into the water and how bad the the weather was anything i've done on the water as an adult whether it be canoeing or kayaking we've always been um, told that we must wear life jackets and I'm glad I think that's a great thing but I, I just realized the height of the adventure the danger that they were on in just being on the uh, on the water in in you know in very deep water in the river in all kinds of weather that that really was quite an adventure and it was quite a danger too and I was also kind of surprised that um, that 
Jim could swim as well as he as well as he could. Um, that that just kind of surprised me a little bit because obviously he and Huck were both very good swimmers because there were many times where they had to swim out to the raft and you know the water wasn't shallow. So that struck me too as adding to the adventure and also to the danger that they were in. This is Kim Friedman talking to you from California, Mr. Pope. Um, Well, I think that Anne Bronte in England approached the same subject in Tenant of Wildfell Hall, in which a woman was married to an alcoholic. So I would say she and uh, Mr. Twain would agree that alcoholism can devastate uh, anybody who is surrounded, who is close to the person who loves drink more than his or her life. Mm-hmm. I, um, 
I thought it was kind of fun to watch the reaction that the judge had to Pap, and and that <laughs> again, it's Twain sort of tweaking the uh, the higher the upper classes. He doesn't necessarily say bad things about Judge Thatcher here. You know, he's not negative, but you know, here's this guy who really thinks, okay, I can. I can reform this this individual. I can make him what he's what he really has never been. And um, you know, Huck seems to know better because he's he's lived it and he understands it uh, in a you know granular way. Um, and it's it's kind of fun to to see Twain sort of in a good natured way perhaps take a little tweak at the the upper crust and try to you know point out that they really. I think they've got it all figured out, but in reality um, may not have all the answers. And also in early in the book, I have this sense of, of, of community that was inferred, uh, especially with respect to the judge and Ms. Watson and the widow, that that this community somehow had had, cre- had, had found a way to try to protect and take care of her basically an orphan and and even to protect him from his father when the law made it difficult for them to to wrench Huck away from his father it was that it was destructive so you know I, I that early that early idea of the community as a nurturer of character and and both and, and a caretaking both the the good in that and they're not so good in it. Uh, when, with respect to slavery and 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 how they treated, you know, African Americans, that's that's was you know the, that contrast was a, was a tremendous contrast to me. I mean, he had affection for for his for his extended family and his community. He had affection for the judge. I loved it when he came to the judge after this uh, after his. Uh, uh, after he discovered his father was still alive, and he asked the judge to, uh, you know, to he doesn't want his money anymore, and the judge figures it out and understands what must have happened. Oh, I bet he found out his father is still around. So, so he he says, "I tell you what, I'll how about I buy this money from you for a dollar, and here you sign this for consideration." And Huck signs it real quick because then he feels like now he's he's free of that burden. Uh, also, a little, a little commentary on how, you know, about money, because Huck doesn't care much about money, and neither does Jim. Their con- their conception of money is very similar. Jim thinks he's rich because he's got fourteen dollars, and uh, and of course he squanders it all on a <laughs> on stock. And I and 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 Huck asks him, "Well, why would you do that? Why would you why would you squander it all on stock?" He said, "Well, I'm not talking about it. I'm talking about livestock." So he buys a cow and invests in a cow, and then it up and dies on him. Uh, which, which is another commentary on, I think, a little commentary, not a expansive one, but a little commentary on, on the whole, uh, the whole efficacy of capitalism as it relates to everybody being able to partake of that. Uh, people with money certainly can, but it's and and basically the Jim makes draws the conclusion that. You know, investing money isn't all that it's cracked up to be. You you lose more often than you gain. I think one of the things that's really important about this time period of Huck Finn is 
that people back then thought about ways to resolve problems and they thought about ways to get through things. They were inventive, they were creative, they did things through the law if they could, but they were able to take the law and sort of tweak it a little bit for their purposes. But the most important thing they did, I think, in relation to him, and I see this in a lot of books of that time period, is that they were able to understand feelings. They never set feelings aside. It didn't become just a matter of law, something being right or something being right. This is what the law demands. And, of course, law has gotten a lot more uh, straight-laced probably since then. Well, I don't know whether straight-laced is the right word, but a lot more developed, shall we say. Um, But back then... Um, they never lost sight of protecting his dignity and, and um, Huck's humanity and uh, looking out for him, but yet at the same time never forgetting that he w- was a person who loved his father and, and, and who had feelings. And that, I think, is something that we've lost a lot of. We tend so much to want to do the right thing, the legal thing, that I think sometimes we set the feelings and emotions aside and they were very important and they knew they were. They never lost sight of that for him. And they knew they were. They never lost sight of that. There may be a little darker side to this, though, and I think Twain's cynicism is coming through. He's making fun, gentle fun, or maybe not so gentle fun, at the well-intentioned do-gooders. Yes, this is a nurturing community for Huck, but only if he conforms to what they want him to be. Wear clean clothes, clean behind your ears, uh, come in time for meals, say grace before you eat, pray, read the good book, want to go to heaven, uh, which is good. I'm, I'm not saying this is anything bad, but if he deviates from that social norm in any way, they're going to cast him out. Oh, you are so right, John. I hadn't thought of that, but you're absolutely right. And if you don't believe it, go into any church today. That's exactly what they expect. You're, they're fine with you as long as you do what they want you to do. But if you want to do something different or you don't conform to what they want, and I think we could say that about a lot of organizations, not just churches, uh, community groups too, a lot of them. If you conform and you do what the majority wants, you're fine. If not, then um, you will know that you have been found lacking. And the good people of uh, Missouri uh, during the time period where... Uh, this book was being written about Huck Finn didn't consider Jim a human being, but as a prop, as a as chattel or property. Uh, they didn't consult him about anything he wanted to do. Yeah, that is that is an interesting perspective. They they tied him up in the raft, and he he didn't have a whole lot to say about it. Um, I want to make sure that people who have not had an opportunity to speak get that opportunity now because I worry about that with these meetings. I, so are there any of you who have not said anything tonight but who have, have wanted to say something? I think that John is now back. John Polk is now back with us in the room, to, be, to the best of my knowledge. And uh, so I'd like to pause and give any of you an opportunity to speak who have not had anything to say tonight but perhaps would like to. Uh, yeah. Um, there is one thing that has struck me while we were talking that nobody has really quite addressed, and yet maybe we've sort of alluded to it a little bit. Um, not only is there the issue of slavery that is involved here, but there is a huge amount that is um, about religion and not so much spirituality, but just goodness. And I don't think that Mark Twain had any problem with goodness, but he certainly was not 
an appreciator of religion as it is practiced as it was practiced in his time and unfortunately it's very much the same today in a lot of situations okay mr polk yes uh yeah i i definitely 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 uh, if you remember the camp meeting uh shortly after they've uh, met uh, the king and the duke and uh, they go to a camp meeting, if you'll remember, and Tuck is just amazed by the goings-on at the camp meeting. He's just, he describes it in great detail. He's, he, he's in awe of, of the, how people are responding to the preacher. And, uh, and then, of course, I forget which one it is, Duke or the King, they, they decide to play one of their scams on the congregation there under the tent. And, Huck gets his first dose of of the use of religion for nefarious, uh, profitable means, and he sees through it. He eventually sees through it, and it's it's he, at first he's in he's just in awe of, of this of this experience of the camp meeting, and then he then as his these rapscallions who come into his life that were initially interesting to him. It, he begins to realize that you know that that religion is something that can be used also to rid people not only of the money in their pocketbooks, but rid of rid them use their just great desire for faith in something beyond themselves to uh, to to actually do something detrimental to them. And we of course that that's playing out today. It, it will always play out in as long as there's organized religion that that can be co-opted for other, uh, you know, more nefarious means. That meeting, I, I thought, stuck out to me, that, that experience that Huck was having. Um, and right away, I mean, that's why those two characters came into, the, came into the novel. I think they came in to represent the worst side of the American character. Willing to do anything, say anything, deceive anybody to achieve, you know, their own personal profit and power, and and that it, it continued through the book for quite a long time. And remember when when Huck has to help save that 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 innocent girl at whose whose inheritance the the rapscallions are going to steal, and and he's and he finally turns against him to the degree where they're after him to kill him. And I, I, you know, he he has to put himself on the line because he sees how horrible it is what they've done. And it starts at that camp meeting when he's initially in awe of their ability to to hoodwink people. And 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 then and then he comes to realize the damage that's really being done. It's not just stealing money from passing around a plate for some pirates who who, who are converted. It's somebody deeply who's lost her father and her family and and that is you know and he makes a he makes a strong moral judgment on that and acts on it okay anyone else who has not spoken please i want to just express my thanks to all of you who who have come tonight you've made a fall our fall classic yet another great success and uh, john we are eternally in your debt because without this would have not been nearly the success that it has been. So thank you for coming. Are there any final comments or questions from the rest of the group? I just wanted to say that this was a great choice and um, 
Mr. Polk, it was absolutely fabulous. Your narration just, at least for me, I literally felt like the characters were coming to life. I had read this book many years ago in high school, and it just didn't do anything for me at the time. It wasn't a book that I enjoyed reading, but this was... This was really a good read. I thoroughly enjoyed your narration, so thank you for that and for coming tonight. Well, to all of you, you're very welcome, and I, I'm the one privileged to hear some of your comments and to have a chance to to spend some time with you. And um, I, I'll tell you what, any time that, you, that uh, you have a comment on something that I personally have narrated or you want to ask a question or you have some um, um, something you'd like to communicate or converse about, uh, you know, I love to do that, and I, and I would love to, to give all of you my email address, if, if that's okay. Uh, Nolan, are you there? Is it okay if I do that? Certainly, this would be wonderful, uh, John. Okay. Uh, so if you've all got a pencil and paper, I'll, I'll repeat it a couple of times. Uh, my email address is B as in bear, I-G, uh, B-E-A-R, so that's big bear, big bear, V as in Victor, O, so that's big bear, VO as in voiceover at gmail.com. BigBearVo at gmail.com. That's my email address. And, and uh, as much as I possibly can, I, you, know, uh, you know, I will you know, respond to you, any uh, you know, comments you have or questions you have about, you know, who knows? It might even be something technical about narrating you want to know. And I'm, I'm you know, it's, I'm all, always willing to share that. The trouble is we don't often get a forum within which to do that as narrators. I don't know how many narrators are currently in the system now, maybe 70, 80 at this point. And um, many have been reading for a number of years. We have a lot of young narrators. And another thing I want to convey to all of you that, that I don't know how much you're aware of, any of you have taken any tours of the printing house, there is, I want to say something very positive about the staff at, at all of the uh, studios, specifically my studio, my, uh, my monitor who holds coffee for me, who sits on the other side of the glass, his name is Bruce Honey. You, many of you know him as a narrator, too. And he, he uh, isn't narrating as much these days, but uh, the two of us work together on stuff. And whenever you hear a narration that I've done, or Andy Pyle has done, or Nick Sullivan, or Ray, uh, Ray Hagen, or Wavers, or Mitzi. There's a, there's a two other people who are, who are integral to making that work and making it uh, a seamless listen for you, and that is the monitor, who is very much involved in the research and and then monitoring what you're doing. Uh, Bruce will stop me and he say, I think the emphasis ought to be over here. And and it's not often he does that, but when he does, I listen to him because he's got a good ear. Everybody's got a good ear who works there. And and then the proofreader who makes sure that what they're hearing, you know, follows 
the text properly and the, and and any technical problems are taken care of so that when you get the product it's 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 a good product and so i just want to let you know that i appreciate and as do all the narrators the work that they do and uh, the staff at the studios do um, and that they contribute to this product and what you listen to has a lot to do with their expertise as well uh, I couldn't it, doing it by myself. It would, you know, you have to have somebody on the other side of the glass, to, you know, that you're performing for, that's listening to you, that's that, that's listening with a critical ear, and that's invaluable. And then getting feedback from those of you willing to do that uh, is is wonderful. Which is, uh, it's just been great to be involved in DB review uh, and and listen to your comments, and not only on my narrations, but on on how you feel about different books and. And what you think about things, and, and I give you one last thing. I don't mind a critique because NLS used to do uh, some constructive criticism. They don't do that anymore. Some of their reviewers used to do that. They don't do that. They hardly review books anymore. We used to get feedback, and, and we learn things about our our performance that help us get better. And I attribute to the NLS reviewers over the years a lot of the of what I was able to do to improve my uh, my skills. And I don't mind hearing even those things that may seem a little negative, but which are constructive. I certainly love to hear the praise. That's wonderful, always wonderful to hear. Everything is, I'm open for everything, and I, and I just love to converse about books and 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 the, the whole process of, of providing these materials to the blind and handicapped. And it's been, a, it's been the... the center point of my career. I've done a lot of voiceover and done a lot of uh, other work. I was a former radio guy, as you guys probably can tell. And I have my own studio, and I do a lot of commercials, and I have over the years. But the thing that has mattered the most to me is this job. And one of the reasons I haven't gone into commercial audiobook work is because I don't want to lose that connection that I have with you. Even though I don't hear from you much, I know it's there. And it, and it matters a lot to me. And I, I just want you to know that. I I put John's email address up in the in the chat area if anybody wants to copy and paste it. Okay, let's see if our fine host Nolan Crab wants to wrap things up. Okay, well, my thanks again to all of you for coming. You know, I won't belabor this too much, but had someone said to me um, almost seven years ago now, when DB Review was born, that tonight we would have uh, an NLS narrator who would be willing to spend more than an hour and a half of his, and a half of his life uh, with a group of us, I'm not sure I would have believed you. We've made such great progress in nearly seven years. And, you know, aside from my, my family and church and my job, uh, the, the single most important thing that, that I have done over those years really is DB Review. I love the list. I love the people. Um, there's not a day goes by, but what I'm not uplifted by something that you contribute to the list or just the fact that you're there. So again, John, thank you for being part of this tonight. We're honored and grateful to, to have had you here, Bob, my thanks again to you and to the accessible world team for hosting a shit again. Um, I'm grateful for the, the science fiction group and it's, it's kindness in, in adjusting its schedule. I'm aware of that and I'm grateful to those folks as well. So, folks, once again, we're, we're all done. This concludes the Fall Classic for 2015. 
Let me know privately if you'd like how you thought this was and what you'd like to see it do better next year or differently. If you'd like to see another narrator next year, talk to me about that too, and we'll we'll see what we can do. So my email address is nolan.crab at gmail.com, and that's C-R-A-B-B. Most of you know that. So thank you all for coming, and again, thanks for making the 2014 Fall Classic another great success. Good night.